Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. No, you're you're actually very right on target with the uh, with the whole ECMO theme that we talk about so often. So, <clears throat> thanks for the introduction, guys. Good morning again. I am dodging uh, in between cases here, so I will be in and out today on the panel. I should be able to make most of it. But um, <clears throat> so today's talk: anticoagulation free ECMO. Does it improve outcomes? And of course, <clears throat> I have no disclosures on this. So what I thought we would do today, guys, is um, have a little fun with this. And basically, it's a simple question, right? I mean, if we do anticoagulation-free or very minimal anticoagulation on VV ECMO, now we're not talking about VA ECMO, we're specifically talking about VV ECMO, does it improve outcomes? And there is a, a very large movement nationwide that's been going on, believe it or not, people have been doing VV ECMO without anticoagulation for as far back as 15 years. I know University of, of Kentucky was doing it at least 12 years ago on certain patients. So anticoagulation of free ECMO, uh, well, what about anticoagulation on ECMO? Um, ECMO is increasingly being utilized as a rescue modality for patients, of course, with severe reversible pulmonary failure, such as ARDS. And although it can be a life-saving intervention, it still carries an in-hospital in -hospital mortality ranging from 30 to 55% in the literature. Anticoagulation has traditionally been used to prevent thrombosis of the ECMO circuit. However, it also has been shown to contribute to bleeding complications. So now, serious bleeding is reported in 39.1% of patients on VV ECMO and can result, of course, in large volume blood transfusions. This is according to uh, ELSO, actually. So gastrointestinal bleeding is one of the most common bleeding complications during ECMO, but bleeding at other sites, including the nasal cavity, you guys have probably seen that, where you're there, where you're at, Joe, we have bleeding coming from the mouth and they're suctioning the mouth and it's coming out of the nose. But the thoracic cavity, certainly the surgical sites and the cannulation sites are big, big sites, uh, common sites for bleeding. And then of course the dreaded intracranial hemorrhage, that is, well, none of these are uncommon. They're all, we see these with some frequency on ECMO. So also patients undergoing ECMO frequently experience bleeding and thrombotic complications. So this is the dilemma, right? We we're having both of these problems. So in a review of, uh, of the, the 2014 data from ELSO, Extra Poor Life Support Organization, the incidence of bleeding at surgical or cannula sites ranged between 10 and 30%. And the central nervous system hemorrhages were from 2 to 6%. You also have uh, incidences of oxygenated thrombosis and that occurs between 7 and 13%. About 10% of the time is, is what you can expect. And then the central nervous system infarctions are about 2 to 4.5%. So now, ethnotherapeutic anticoagulation with, with, with IV unfractionated heparin goals. This is what most people fall under one or more of these categories. If you're monitoring ACTs, most people will target. 180 to 200 seconds. If you're monitoring PTT, most people will use one and a half to two and a half times 
the normal range, which puts you somewhere between 40 to 60 if you're a little conservative, or 50 to 70 if you want to go a little more anticoagulation of the PTT time. Or if people use antifactor 10A, they'll find themselves uh, trying to stay within the range of 0.3 to 0.7 units per milliliter. So that's what normally people are going to do with anticoagulation, IV anticoagulation, heparin on VV ECMO patients. So patients placed on VV ECMO traditionally receive continuous systemic anticoagulation therapy, which increases the risk of bleeding. In the published EOLA trial uh, not too many years ago, 46% of the patients had bleeding complications, such as I mentioned, GI bleeding, and this, of course, increased their risk of mortality and morbidity while on ECMO. In patients being bridged to transplant, though, bleeding results in blood transfusions, which is, you know, that is going to uh, be very detrimental because it's going to increase the sensitization to histocompatibility of antigen, posing immunological challenges. So if somebody is a bridge to transplant, which is a common thing we talk about for people being on ECMO, if they get too many blood transfusions, that may knock them completely out of being a candidate for that transplant. So bleeding problems have a whole different uh, problem when it comes to uh, a different implication when it comes to a transplant patient. So recent studies that that lower uh, levels of systemic anticoagulation can be used to support patients with VV ECMO, but the feasibility and safety of VV ECMO without systemic anticoagulation is largely published in the form of anecdotal reports. Advances in circuit technology, including heparin-coated tubing or bio-coated tubing, PNP oxidators, polymethylpentene fibers, and centrifugal pumps have reduced the thrombogenicity of ECMO. So all those things have helped us over the years enormously. If you remember back years ago, those problems were just almost uh, insurmountable on ECMO back in the 80s and 90s. But now COVID-19, however, has complicated the anticoagulation free ECMO due to the hypercoagulability that we often see with COVID. Not always, though. So now some publications to see, are we uh, VV ECMO without anticoagulation? Answer the question of the title of the, of the lecture, does it improve outcome? Well, Sai and his um, colleagues, in a paper back in uh, Critical Care 2017, Anticoagulation Practices, and the prevalence of bleeding and thrombolic events, he reviewed a meta-analysis and uh, he took observational studies and he was able to find 1,496 patients that were supported with VA, with VA ECMO. So the incidence of major bleeding ranged from 13 to 50%, similar to the statistic I said earlier, and it was correlated to the heparin strategy that people used, meaning that if they used a heavy heparin dose, they had more bleeding than people who are more light-footed light with their heparin. The main contributors to hemorrhagic complications were surgical re-expiration, intracranial hemorrhage, and bleeding at the site of the cannula. The incidence of thrombotic complications ranged from 3 to 12% and was also correlated with the heparin strategy that people used in this review study. The thrombotic events predominantly included limb ischemia, and circuit-related clotting and stroke. So you see the dilemma that we find ourselves in. Sangrillo and his colleagues, a meta-analysis of complications and mortality of ECMO in critical care 
resuscitation 2013, they did a meta-analysis and they found 1,763 patients supported by ECMO that showed bleeding and thrombotic events predominantly contributed to the complications during ECMO support. The incidence of thrombotic complications in their review found, again, 3 to 12 percent and was also correlated with the heparin strategy that people use, meaning if they used more heparin, they had more uh, bleeding, and if they used less, they had a little bit more thrombotic complications. The thrombotic events predominantly included limb ischemia, circuit-relating clotting, and stroke, similar to the last study I just quoted. So now, if we look at, um, here an article came out in Annual of Thoracic Surgery 2020. Um, let's look at the methods that they used here. It was a retrospective re review. Uh, they did consecutive patients from 2015 to 2019. So they looked back on the. Uh, sorry, guys. Hello, hello, Okay, so we'll just go to uh, the studio while he's doing what he's. Is he going to be uh, heading out? So everyone, so I mean, so far he has really had quite an interesting, I think, conversation. Sure. Um, and this is not un unlike what uh, what we deal with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, you want to ask him? Uh, it's okay. So there he is. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So he's still there. I oh, think he stepped good. away to just take the call. Yeah, that's fine. And uh, okay. Oh. Right, so hold on. Sorry. Hold on. We're coming back to you, John. Yeah. Uh, I did I my best I to. I, unfortunately, it wasn't for something I have to do. Oh, good. So, like I said, they did a retrospective review from. January 15th of 2019, and they found that 38 patients received low levels of the continuous. Now, this you have to look at the nomenclature. They, they looked at patients that had continuous systemic anticoagulation. They found 38, and they call that AC, meaning anticoagulation positive, meaning they gave them anticoagulation. Then they found 36 patients that only received the standard venous thromboprophylaxis, and they call that anticoagulation minus, meaning they didn't receive systemic anticoagulation. Now, the standard venous thromboprophylaxis that any normal ICU patient would receive, ECMO or not, is typically a sub-Q heparin, could be two different ways, sub-Q heparin, it's only 1,000 units about every eight hours, which is very minimal. You're talking 1,000 units given sub-Q, uh, you know, once a shift or every eight hours. And by the way, that doesn't even change your ACT or your PTT most of the time mm -hmm. at all. Or, Joe, as you talked about, Lovenox, also called an aspirin, uh, 40 milligrams, again, sub-Q once a day. So mm -hmm. these, this, when they say standard venal thromboprophylaxis, this is for, you know, bedridden patients to prevent them from having deep venous thrombosis while they're in bed or, even worse, pulmonary embolus. But this generally, if you run an ACT or PTT on someone with this, you find almost no change in them. So it's all, for all practical purposes, on, he on ECMO, it's, it's basically like having no anticoagulation. So you have AC plus patients and AC minus patients with no coagulation. So they published, the published ELSO guidelines are what they use to define their outcomes and complications. So let's see what they discovered here. So the results was overall, between these two groups, survival was no different between the groups. However, the patients in the anticoagulation group had higher rates of GI bleeding, 
28.9% in the anticoagulation group wow. and only 5.6% in the group that was not systemically epinephrine. Oxygenator dysfunction was increased, believe it or not, they had oxygenator dysfunction higher rate in the anticoagulation group than they did in the non-anticoagulation group, which is kind of counterintuitive, but this is what they reported. 28.9% dysfunction of the oxygenator in the anticoagulation group and only 11% in the non-anticoagulation group. Mm -hmm. And the anticoagulation group received more transfusion. In PAC cells, the anticoagulation group, 94.7% versus only 55.5% in the non-anticoagulation. FFP, 60% versus 16.5% of the non-anticoagulation. And platelets, 84% of the patients received, whereas in the non-anticoagulation, only 27.7%. And those are p-values of 0 0.001, which is pretty good. So they didn't find that there was any circuit thrombosis in either groups throughout the ECMO support. Hmm. So, so that was that uh, uh, study. So here we have uh, another study that came out in Artificial Organs 2017. Uh, they're looking at prophylactic subcutaneous anticoagulation only, and they looked at 60 patients. But they, their study, they wanted to evaluate and find a protocol for VV ECMO therapy without additional anticoagulation. There trying to uh, dig into that further. That the patients without former thrombotic events slowly receive thrombosis prophylaxis, which is what I said earlier, but in this hospital, they give 40 milligrams of sub-Q Lovenox or Noxaprine per day, just 40 milligrams per day, like they do every other critical care patient. So they did the same thing they would do with their regular critical care patients when it came to sub-Q and Noxaprine. So 61 patients received BV ECMO with prophylactic sub-Q and axoparin only, meaning no systemic anticoagulation. Now, the median duration of ECMO therapy in this study is remarkably short, only seven days. The range was between two and 32 days, but they had pretty short ECMO runs at this particular hospital. So, but overall, because of all the patients they did, the 60 patients, they were able to observe 560 ECMO days mm. of, uh, of this uh, non-anticoagulation. Uh, non so that's, that's pretty significant. So yeah, well, the six, six, six sevens are 42. No systemic exchange was due to thrombotic occlusion. They didn't have to change any circuits out due to thrombosis of the circuit. They identified thrombotic complications in four patients, and only 18% of patients presented with bleeding after seven days of ECMO. Remember, their average run was only seven days. They had no fatal bleeding events and no intracranial hemorrhage was observed either. Patients required only one-third of the blood products compared to the ELSO-published data wow. for anticoagulated BV ECMO uh, norms. So the, uh, in this study, uh, the BV ECMO with prophylactic anticoagulation only was used, as I, as I mentioned. But it, it was not associated with an increased rate of system exchanges compared to regimes, regimes with therapeutic anticoagulation, also in the registry data. They concluded that there exists a good potential to significantly decrease the incidence of severe bleeding events and blood transfusions. So this is what they recommended in the article. Their quote, they say, the apocalyptic adherence to anticoagulation in every in, in therapeutic dosage should be critically scrutinized 
in every patient. So this patient, this paper was really trying to promote that just don't use an ad hoc blanket uh, policy that you just have to anticoagulate all your VV ECMO patients. This is what they were recommending, that you can look patient to patient, and you should really consider non-anticoagulated uh, VV ECMO. This is what this paper was mm. back in 2017. So here we have a paper in, in a, a journal of trauma acute care surgery, 2020. And here's their method. They reviewed their single center experience with ECMO from January 2006 to November 2015. Uh, and they're a level one primary adult trauma center. And they were trying to determine the association of in-hospital mortality with patient demographics and clinical variables. So they looked at 39 uh, patients were candidated for VV ECMO. 44% of those patients survived to discharge. The median age of the patients was 28 years old, you know, pretty young population. Survivors had a lower BMI and, and PACO2 at time of cannulation. So they're letting you know here that the, uh, the survivors had a little bit of an advantage in that their BMI wasn't as big as the non-survivors and their critical high level of CO2 wasn't as high as a lot of the non-survivors. However, the non-survivors were more severely injured, median injury severity score, 41 versus 25, had a lower arterial pH on arrival and a shorter length of stay, 11 versus 41 days. 41% developed at least one ECMO-related complication, but it was not associated with their mortality. 94% of the survivors were anticoagulated with heparin versus 55% of the non-survivors. Median injury severity score in presence of uh, TBI, uh, traumatic brain injury, were not significantly different between survivors and non-survivors who were anticoagulated. Mm. So their conclusion is the use of VV ECMO for acute lung injury after trauma should be considered in special patient populations. But the ability to tolerate systemic anticoagulation was, approved, was associated with improved survival. What this article is about is contrary to the other three or four I just discussed, and they're actually saying that the anticoagulation patients would actually did better than the non-anticoagulation patients. So here's an article that's going contrary to some of the ones I talked about earlier. So here's a, uh, and then when I talk about so many articles are published anecdotally, I mean, it's hard to get a large volume study with ECMO, right? I mean, you have to do a lot of patients non-anticoagulated and a lot of patients anticoagulated. And, and just to have a large volume of ECMO patients, period, is very difficult. So, so many of these papers published are anecdotal. Here's just one. I just want to bring one to you. And it's a case of good, good pasture syndrome, which is related to pulmonary hemorrhage. 16-year-old male with severe acute respiratory and renal failure as a result of good pasture syndrome required VV ECMO for pulmonary hemorrhage. The patient received no systemic anticoagulation for 25 of the 26 ECMO days, 20 days consecutively, and suffered no coagulation-related adverse events. The patient had subtherapeutic anticoagulation profile according to the recommended ECMO guidelines, so they basically went uh, against the ECMO uh, ELSO guidelines and used, you know, just the, just the prophylaxis, normal uh, sub-Q heparin. Uh, they did not use systemic anticoagulation. The patient made a full recovery with respiratory compromise 
ECMO circuit failure, thrombotic events, or the need for ongoing uh, hemodialysis. None of those things occur in the patient made a full recovery. And I think that's the last, yeah, yeah. So what do you think about all that? Wow, wow. I mean, I'm pretty impressed by it. Um, uh, why am I echoing? Hey, John, can you, uh, is it, uh, what is it? No, it's not you, it's us. We'll figure it out. So um, a couple of things, John. Um, I noticed the very short, the one uh, presentation where you had, or the one study that you did with the uh, only seven days, it sounds like they had very strict selection criteria. So, and you said, you know, 500 and something ECMO days, you know, you have seven, seven, uh, seven days and 60 patients. That's already 420 days. Yeah. So it's very easy to see where they got all of those ECMO days, but it sounds like they were very selective. Yeah. yeah. With the average BMI being so low. And then another thing was, and that's oh. one of my talks I'm going to give is there's such a dispute about whether you, what the, what is the appropriate BMI and should BMI be a factor in making a decision to do ECMO or not? It's very conflicting out there mm -hmm. on that so, subject. How often, guys, do we criticize these centers for poor patient selection? Almost always it seems to come up. Well, here's an example, I think, where you see people were pretty pretty strict on their on their patient selection. Yes. And uh, I guess it's refreshing to see that on, on, on some level. Yeah, I think so. But of course, that always opens up the door for the criticism that I have heard from many people is that, well, yeah, that patient probably would have made it without ECMO. I've heard that many times. If your so, selection criteria is too tight, you're criticized for actually using ECMO. Whereas if it's too loose, then see, ECMO doesn't work. Where's the where is that sweet spot? And I, I don't have that answer. So it's very important, I think, Joe, before I lose my train of thought, that we point out to our listeners that when you read these papers, most of the time they do not explain whether they use a bio-coded circuit or not. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's, that's, that's one of the biggest things. If you see a report that says, well, you know, we didn't anticoagulate our patients and uh, we had all these problems. Well, yeah, but were you using a coded circuit or not? Are most, and most uh, people by far? Ours are. Yeah. yeah. Are most people and using? Most, most people by far aren't using coded cannulas. In uh, fact, the right. ninety-nine percent are probably not. So here's something I want to point out before we lose our train of thought. If you're an ECMO center, you're fairly new, or you don't do ECMO very often, and you're considering we have bleeding problems, let's try to go to an anticoagulation reduced BB ECMOs. One thing you, you can be very, very careful, you have to be cognizant of, you must have your anesthesiologist give a 3,000 heparin bolus before those cannulas go in. Mm -hmm. While they're putting the needle and maybe the wire at the very latest, if not before, make sure you have a bolus of 3,000. Some people give 5,000 heparin bolus because that will wear off very quickly. Heparin half-life is only 90 minutes. But once you stick a long venous cannula, Let's say you're doing fem fem VV and you have to put two, you know, pretty decent sized femoral cannulas in the vein. One, once you put the one cannula in, it's going to sit there, you know, idle for how many of minutes it takes you to get the other venous cannula in. So you must have heparin on the patient. And also you put that cannula in and you let the blood bleed back 
to de-air the cannula, and then you just take a bulb syringe full of saline and completely flush the blood out of that cannula. Flush that cannula free of blood, fill it with saline, and clamp the end of it. Now that cannula can sit idle while you're inserting the other femoral venous cannula, and the chances of clotting are going to be very, very low. If you don't do that, you can easily go on ECMO when you finally get the two cannulas in and suck back an enormously long clot and completely clot off your system within the first 30 seconds of going on. I've seen that happen a number of times. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a very, very, very good point. And that has happened. I've seen it happen as well. Now, John, on this, you're talking about, we're talking strictly VV. Um, I got did get a question um, from uh, Messenger. So I want to ask it, and it's from uh, Nirman, and uh, they're asking, what is the suggested preferred coagulation study, and I'm assuming that's your preferred study, for during VV ECMO? Do you have one study that you would suggest to them, or would you, or do you have a strategy that you think, in your opinion, is the best? So is there a study that you like or a series of studies? You know what? You you want to do this, well, uh, Nirman? Why don't you reach out to John? Uh, it's John Ingram at uh, Mediweb.us. Oh, yes, yeah, Mediweb.us. And we'll put that up. In fact, can you send it to him and send John that question directly? And he should be able to send you some resources that I think you could use. So, and you can also find his email, I think, on our website. But we're going to send Niram on that. But is there a particular yeah. study you like? How, how can, I think I think my email is john.ingram at perfweb.me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Have, have the guys reach out to him. But if you'll if you'll send me an email with exactly what he wants to know, I'll be I'll be able to respond to him a little better. Well, you know, any of your multi-center large studies, which I think I brought up at least three there today, that had large volumes with seventeen hundred. 1,400 patients, which is an incredible amount of, you know, ECMO patients to look at. Um, I would never just look at one study, by the way. Uh, what was the, what was the caller's name? Iman? Nirman. Nirman. Yeah. I would never just hinge my practice on one study. Always find at least three to five studies, hopefully large center, hopefully multi-center if you can. Now, ECMO is hard to do with, the, with all those things I just said, but, you know, always find four or five articles that all conclude a similar thing. That way you know that the results of one particular publisher are reproducible and will be very likely to be reproducible at your center if you're following what they're saying in those in those studies. But the technique that, uh, that, that I like a lot, I've seen a lot, and we do hundreds here at the center I'm at, is to give a 3,000, like I said, heparin bolus. Now, this is for non- anticoagulation or anticoagulation for that matter, always give that 3,000 heparin bolus right before the cannula starts going in. Flush your cannulas with saline, go on go on VV ECMO, and you should not have to give any more heparin. Now, there's another golden rule, Joe and Tammy, I forgot to mention. You cannot just run your flows low while you're on VV ECMO. Mm, yeah. You must keep your flows above two and a half liters per minute. Some places use three liters a minute, but we use two and a half liters per minute. If you're in some type of weaning process or whatever reason you cannot flow above two and a half liters, you're, you're sucking down a lot and you're having problems. If you're starting to have to flow for any length of time at all, below two and a half liters, your likelihood of having clotting events 
and that circuit goes up exponentially. So this is for two and a half liters and above flow. So that's a very important thing to note also for the, for the viewer and for the listeners. Very good. Um, and we are strictly talking VV. We're not talking VA, right? There are, there are people, and we have done it, and there are people that are, are doing some small amount of, you know, VA, ECMO, non-heparinized. But, but, you know, I, I really wouldn't advise that. You'd have to have in a serious hemorrhage situation, and your surgeon would have to decide that. And just so everybody knows, also, any form of non-anticoagulation goes against ELSO's recommendations. They still have it in their guidelines. That and that one slide I showed of you should keep the PTT one and a half times normal, ACT 180 to 220, or your anti 10A 0.3 to 0.7. You, they do not. They have not pulled that down. They have not changed that recommendation. VBRVA, they have not endorsed a non-anticoagulated uh, ECMO. But mm -hmm. I can tell you there have been you know, thousands of procedures done. And in fact, at our institution, and I think a lot of places find that they'll get into a bleeding situation on a particular patient, and they just have to turn the heparin off as an absolute must. Otherwise, the patient's going to bleed to death and die. And you find that your bleeding complications start reducing tremendously, not only on that patient, but on uh, more and more patients. In fact, at our institution, we don't even discuss VVF modes. They're all non-anticoagulated, right out of the gate. It's not even a discussion anymore. So that's just your normal protocol now. Is that correct? Yeah. Now, now, as I said in that one slide, COVID has thrown a little bit of a monkey wrench into that. So we, we give, uh, we try to systemically anticoagulate our COVID patients and the sub-Q, if nothing else, the sub-Q, like you said, the Lovenox or the heparin. And by the way, Joe, all of our COVID ECMOs are on aspirin. You mentioned that earlier as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, we're doing aspirin and Plavix. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. We have, uh, uh, we've had uh, now um, we've had one intracranial hemorrhage that we know of because it's a scan. We have it documented um, with a patient essentially with a uh, with the low molecular weight heparin sub Q and uh, and low dose Plavix and aspirin, and uh, they still had uh, uh, intracranial hemorrhage in four sites. So I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, what's your experience with ICH and low to no uh, anticoagulation strategy? Well, um, we have it. We see it. In fact, um, we're doing a CT right now on, on one that probably happened last night. Um, and I was able to uh, have somebody do it for me so I could do this lecture. Supposed to be in CT right now with that exact suspicion. But remember one thing, your ICT, your, your intracranial hemorrhage, a lot of times is due to the inflammatory response that's been going on with this, you know, the huge inflammatory response. It's not necessarily because you had the patient anticoagulated. Of course, you know, once the anti-inflammatory response deteriorates tissues to the point where you can have a bleed, which by the way happens all the time in the GI system and pleural effusions and everything else. Now that you have the inflammatory response to its damage, now that you're anticoagulated, you know, you've, you've kind of turbocharged it in a, in a, in a bad way in that, in that regard. So we walk a very fine line, which is why the introduction of the talk talked about, you know, we're concerned about thrombotic events and we're concerned about bleeding. We're right to have to walk a very narrow fence there, you know, 
And mm-hmm. different patients are different. It's hard to do something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, uh, what we really don't do ACPs anymore. No. We do PPPs. So, you know, what's your view on low range ACPs, their accuracy and their, what I consider to be lack of sensitivity? Well, years ago when we, for at previous institution I worked at, when we switched from ACT to PTT, we had kind of heard about it going on in the Texas Medical Center and we were unsure about it. And so we, in the beginning, we would run ACT and PTT side by side. Mm-hmm. We did that for many patients um, in the first year or so because we didn't have a lot of ECMOs. And you're right, it doesn't have the same kind of sensitivity. So my ACT might, you know, come back at 160 or 165 and I would be like, oh, we need heparin. And then the PTT would come back fine within range. Over one and a half times yes, baseline. Yes, we, we uh, would run uh, 45 to 65 was our range. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. pretty big. It's yeah. pretty high range. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that. Um, and we always just kind of went for the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know, if John, if you guys are doing this there, but I read a, uh, a very interesting article. Um, and by the way, David, I love this screen, the, the three pack. This is really this is really <laughs> cool, dude. OK, um, but I just recently read an article um, on using aerosolized inhaled heparin oh. to mm-hmm. reduce uh, uh, thrombotic events in the lung. Are you guys doing that, John? Or have you heard that or seen anything about that? And it also has apparently significant anti-inflammatory qualities to the lung as well. I have not heard that one. I will. I will go to our unit uh, shortly here later today and, and ask if if uh, that if anybody's doing that up there. If they have, I haven't heard of it. Yet. So it's aerosolized heparin. Yes, yes, aerosolized unfractionated heparin. And I saw the paper. They had several. They had a lot of information on it, including a protocol for it. But um, their their reason, their hypothesis for using it was actually for uh, originally the the uh, little uh, thrombotic events, little PEs that they were having. But then they realized that it was having significant anti-inflammatory properties, as I recall the article. But you can look it up, aeros- inhaled aerosolized heparin. Uh, and uh, and ECMO or COVID or whatever you want to put, I'm sure it'll pop up. Yeah. You want to hear a little bit of a history uh, lesson uh, that 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 I have uh, very interesting. You know, we talk about Lovenox and low molecular weight heparin now, like it's a common thing. In 1989, I was looking to do a, a paper, and I found something called research that was very very you know minutia research being done in animals on something called low molecular weight heparin. And I did a paper on that. Nobody even had a word for it, so we called it low molecular weight heparin. I presented it, I think, at the academy meeting that year. People thought I was out of my mind. Like, what are you talking about? This is, this is way down the, the, the rabbit hole in, uh, in research. We'll never see this. Nobody cared. And now, lo and behold, it's used everywhere. I don't bring that paper out to you, Joe. You'd be shocked. I would love to see that. On low molecular weight heparin. And I would propose that this would be a very useful uh, drug one day because it has all the good qualities <laughs> of heparin without the negative qualities because it's the low molecular weight heparin that gives you your true anticoagulation without all your negative effects of the higher molecules of the heparin of one fraction. Did yes, you know that? I, I did know that, 
but uh, I'd love to see that article. John, it's funny that I think back that yes. I wrote this and people thought I was nuts. It's kind of like writing about aliens at the time, you know what I mean? Yeah. And well, now, flash forward to the future, and is everybody, oh, of course we use a low molecular weight heparin. Of course, you know, it's everywhere. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, I know how you feel because when I gave my first talk on systemic hyperkalemia for the minimally invasive mitral valves, people actually said in the audience that I was nuts. Mm-hmm. But you know, hey, you know, <laughs> I, I'd rather be—I—I I, I enjoy being a little nutty, actually. So, okay, um, did you have any specific questions? No, it was a great talk. I. Um, thought you brought up a lot of really interesting studies and um, it was, I, I love when you include one that is contradic- contradictory to the other ones. Yes. I, I think that it's just as important to know the ones that are uh, of a different result as it is to the one, you know, the, the results that you primarily see. No, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. I think we, I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's contradictory, but I think that in many ways, it's complementary because in medicine, I think there are no absolutes. Right. Well, and it's interesting because you can compare their methods and their patient selection and all of those sorts of things. And sometimes you can really get a lot more out of that when you have two different things to compare. I think you're absolutely right. Okay. Very good. Oh, there's a Facebook. Okay. Facebook hold on. Comment. Forgive me. Okay. It says, uh, and it's also from Nirman. ACT, APTT vary a lot depending on the pathology. That's right. Mm-hmm. And particularly if the inflammatory process continues uh, uh, too long. Absolutely true. And that's a, uh, that's a catch-22 situation. Also, uh, the other coagulation factors also do matter. Absolutely true mm-hmm. as well. You know, I mean, I think if, you know, how many times have we seen? Nirman, that's a very good point. Um, and I'll address it specifically because how many times have we seen we're giving heparin, like in the older days, 900, 1,000, 1,200 units per hour um, IV, and our patient is coagulopathic. Mm-hmm. You know, they have, they're, they're not going to clot no matter what we do, and we're still giving them heparin. Mm-hmm. And so you can do, we, you can do anticoagulation-free anything if the patient is coagulopathic and won't clot. I mean, that's the first time I ever did it. And I, this was a couple of years ago and I was very nervous the whole time, mm-hmm. but we just turned the heparin off because the patient wouldn't stop bleeding. Right. And the patient, if you don't stop the bleeding, the yeah. patient's not going to survive. And we went coagulation free without anything for over 24 hours um, and had no issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. As long as you have good flows. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. But in that patient, you could actually run low flow because if you're if you have no coagulation factors, you are yeah. not going to clot no matter mm-hmm. what you do. I mean, that's just a harsh reality. John, thank you so much. I think uh, I'm next. Interestingly enough, I hope you can catch some of it. And yep. uh, my two lectures. Well, we're going to try to take a short break too. I've drank a lot this morning, um, <laughs> so I have the mechanics of CRRT: normal flows and normal pressures. I'm not here to debate CRRT, whether you should use it or not, though I think you should. That's not what this is about. It's about trying to understand the mechanics of the device and then how to integrate that into your ECMO circuit, sort of a how-to guide. Well, actually, before we get into that, that brings up a question I had. 
John, have you seen any problems with your CRTs machine filters clotting when you're going with this heparin or no heparin anticoagulation ECMOs? Well, um, you have to manage the CRT machine um, very wisely. And I know it varies from institution to institution. So at our institution, they have minimum flows that they keep their flows above a certain uh, rate. They don't slow it down um, below, I think, I want to say below 300. I want to mm -hmm. say is what they, they don't go lower than that. Some people go lower than that. And then you, you so you want, that's one thing. The second thing is they'll use the, um, the citrate. Well, that's, what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to hear. You regionally right. anticoagulate yeah. the, the, yeah. the uh, CRRT machine. Because we've had a little pushback with that, and depending on you know who who the attending is, uh, not wanting to use that, and then not being able to um, maintain higher flows because of volume issues, and the filters are clotting. So it's, it's really no surprise. They're but flowing I was just 200 cc's a minute. Yeah. In a non-anticoagulated patient, we're flowing four and a half to five liters. They're like, well, your system doesn't clot. Well, of course, we're flowing four and a half to five liters. You're flowing 200. And our CRTs, uh, are they bio-coded? The no. See, so there's no. yet another thing, right? No, they're not They're not coded. They're, they're, they don't have any heparin coding or anything like that that would make them have reduced thrombogenicity. And actually, I think it's more the flow, the low flow through it mm -hmm. is probably what is more responsible than the thrombogenicity itself mm -hmm. of the actual device because that's going to get coded eventually yeah. um, with enough blood with any blood flow through mm -hmm. it i think it's just it's so slow that the clotting just begins and clot as we know begets clot mm -hmm. and so right. you start with a little bit of clot and then it just starts to build on itself. yeah and so, so regionally, about, about, about a year ago, I call about a year ago from a brand new ECMO center, it's their first or second one, called me on the phone. Our, our, our CRT keeps clotting off every every four hours. They've gone through four in, in like the first shift or something. And the first 24 hours, it keeps clotting off. But what's, what are we doing wrong? I said, well, what are you flowing? They said, we're flowing, you know, uh, 200. I said, well, you're going to have to flow a lot more than that. Well, we that's what we flow here. We can't. That's what we do here. We always flow 200, and we, we can't turn it up. I said, well, then, you know, are you doing citrate? Um, well, yeah, but they couldn't tell me how much. You know, if you're not going to change something, if you're going to get the same result, yeah. right? You know what that is, right? Yes. Yes. So yes. They kept they kept screaming up and down, you know, why is it plotting? Why is it plotting? How long should it last? And I said, you can't flow that low. Well, we always do this. We always flow this low. We don't have a problem on all of our other patients. Well, I can tell you that. You know, you're on ECMO and you're likely to be, you know, coagulation system is going to be hyperactive, inflammatory response can be hyperactive, just because you can get away with 200. Is that a common flow outside of ECMO, Joe? 200? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it depends, you know, and I'm going to be talking about that. It's a lot of it is catheter dependent, size of the catheter, placement of the catheter, volume status of the patient. Um there's so many factors that play a role in how much you can flow uh, yeah. and there are things you can do to uh, maximize that, if you will. But at the end of the day, I think my take home message 
my nugget, if you will, from this conversation, John, is um, I think there's a lot of places that I think it's good that they're doing things. But if you really don't know what you're doing with something, you probably ought not do it without expert consultation. Hmm. You know, just because the CRRT seems easy to do. And, you know, if you really know what you're doing, it is very easy to do. But it's uh, you'll see from my discussion that there's a lot of factors that influence how much you can flow and why, what this pressure means and all of that stuff. And there's a lot of tricks, but the beauty of ECMO is, is that you, you know, and I'll talk about pre, I'll pre, I'll pre uh, uh, talk my talk uh, is that you have an unlimited blood supply and you can still regionally anticoagulate your system even though you're going into ECMO and avoid all these problems. But that's not really what my talk is about. However, gotcha. we'll discuss this. John, thank you. Thanks, John. You know, it's great talk. They're like, oh, our pressures are to this, our pressures are to that. Well, what size cannula do you have? And, well, this is the cannula we always use. So basically, they're calling me to change something, <laughs> but they're insisting that they're stuck and they can't change anything anyway. So like you just said, Joe, you have to, you know, first or second ECMO they've ever done. You can't just necessarily think, we're just going to plug and play like we always do. It's not mm -hmm. going to work. No, and I don't really want to debate this. This is another yeah. topic for another day. But, you know, I, I'll just leave it to say that I, I think uh, I think that a lot of what gets what we do, you really have to you really have to think about it. There's sometimes you're in an emergency. I remember this surgeon I used to work with. His name was Dick Eady. He was a very interesting character. And he told me one time, he said, Joe, when you're in an emergency, you don't have time for polite hand wringing. Just do something. Okay. And sometimes that is true. That's true. But other times, when it's not an emergency, maybe critical, but it's not an emergency, you really have to stop and consider do I really know how to do this? You know, and you can't just go starting an ECMO program if you aren't really prepared for it. And I think uh, it's something that concerns me. And we can we can have this discussion another day. Yeah. John, yeah. thank you so very much. It's great seeing you. Outstanding lecture. I learned a lot, um, which is the best part of everything. And uh, you're a gem. I hope you can join us, continue to join and listen to some of the other yeah. talks today. They're going to be, I think, very, very interesting. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be in and out at the moment. I got to, I'm going to take a break, but I got to, um, I'll be in and out. I'll be texting uh, your technical guys and tell, tell them, you know, I'm back. I'm, I got to go and they'll take me off. So you won't see a blank chair anyway. No okay. problem. 